This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I started sensing a call to ministry really early on, say about age 12. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the author of several books, including most recently, The Storm-Tossed Family. Uh, My home church pastor was someone who said, okay, well then you're going to preach at a youth night two weeks from now, and I'll teach you how to do that. Uh, It was awful. (laughs) It was awful. I mean, it was this whole canon but not the whole canon fitting together. It was just the whole canon scattershot in eight minutes uh, sort of thing. I was so nervous that I vomited before I went out, vomited after <laughs> in the little room off the baptistry. <laughs> and uh, you know, if I look back and I look at most of the things that I was worried about in the span of time over, say, junior high, early high school, a lot of it had to do with fear of uh, public speaking. Mm. What, would I ever be able to, to get over that? Fear, and I could even, I can take the Bible I had at the time and just look at the highlights that I had and see that's what I was talking about. But I looked around and I just couldn't see models of people who were. I knew lots of people in ministry, including in my family. I was nothing like any of them, hmm. and so I couldn't find models of people who, because of the fearfulness that you weren't. No, like no, them? no, no. Just because of the. I was in a tradition of very revivalistic, very emotional to the point of screaming, crying sort of preaching, yeah. and very sloganeering kind of really uh, dispensationalist prophecy chart sort of uh, thing. Sure. Really, everything is about a mood that is struck in just the right way at the altar call, all of that sort of thing that I just, that wasn't me and I couldn't be. And it was also very anti-intellectual in a way that I would feel guilty for reading in front of people because it was almost like, why are you reading that? To the point that my wife laughs at me, the point that even now I kind of tense up when someone asks me, what are you reading? Huh. You know, if I'm on a plane or something, I have something. It's almost like I've been caught right. doing something I shouldn't <laughs> do. So all of that uh, sort of played into it. And then I had a big faith crisis hmm. at age 15 that had to do with looking around and saying, this isn't New Testament Christianity. Hmm. Uh, when you have the people who are standing up lambasting adultery, committing adultery, and nobody says anything because they're kind of the power brokers in the community. Interesting. And you have people who are able to quote the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 who are using racist epithets. Yeah. All in the, the, the racism was deeply, deeply disturbing to me as a, as a teenager. And so I went in a completely different political direction yeah. after that, still a, a committed Christian, but trying to find my way in the, in the political world, which is where I was for several years and a lot of opportunities at a really, really young age that I still now kind of look back and realize, wait a minute, I was a year or two older than my teenage sons now and I was running congressional campaigns, uh, communications operations, those sorts of things. So that happened, but there was still this sense of, well, wait, this isn't what God was calling me to either. 
And so I initially just said, I'm just going to go into ministry, which is where I think God is calling me, and I'm just going to show up as who I am and see what happens. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, I'll talk to Russ Moore about the ways he's working to advocate for Christian ethics in a post-Christian world. We'll talk about dystopian futures, sex robots, Donald Trump, and more. So stay with us. How would you attribute your perspective being different from those around you? Like, were there people in your life that were handing you books and encouraging the intellectual side of you? Were there people around you who were speaking out about the racism and those kinds of things? No, there was none of that. I think it was—it's, of course, hard to know, but I think probably what happens was I was a very imaginative uh, sort of person for whatever reason. That was kind of my place was imagination. And so I was somebody who was in imaginative worlds uh, really early, whether that's through comic books or through Chronicles of Narnia or Tolkien or, or whatever. And then that sort of bridged me out into reading generally, which connected me to a bigger, broader stream. And then, frankly, a lot of it had to do with, you know, I look at back at it now and I see all of these things that seem to be accidental connections one to the other. Hmm. So I was listening to Christian music, uh, much of it really, really bad. I now know. <laughs> but some of it not, some of it really good. So I would read something at the time called uh, CCM Magazine, uh-huh. Contemporary Christian Music Magazine. Well, uh. most of it probably was just industry schlock. Right. But there was a column in there by a guy by the name of John Fisher. I, I don't even know what ever uh, happened to him. But he wrote this column that was thoughtful and uh, that kind of bridged me out to reading Christianity Today mm. and Philip Yancey and J.I. Packer and people like that. And it was almost Christianity Today became radio-free Bible Belt for mm. me. It, it was almost dispatches from another place where I could really see, okay, what I'm rejecting here isn't Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there actually are people who are following Jesus and who haven't put their minds in a blind trust and haven't put their consciences in a blind trust. And I think that was that had a lot to do with it. But it wasn't so much seeing seeing things around me. That was the problem. Was yeah. it I couldn't have a picture of, okay, this is what I am aspiring to do and to be. I just I couldn't see I could see people that were admirable. Yeah. But there were people who were admirable in ways that I knew I 
I couldn't do. Yeah, interesting. So how did you get involved in politics? Uh, I started just in high school. I was really active. I started volunteering in people's campaigns. And then uh, in early college, I was involved in all sorts of campus political uh, organizations. And I started out volunteering on the campaign of a a man who was running for Congress I really admired, uh, who lost. Hmm. We knew he was going to lose all along, but he got 48% of the vote, which nobody was expecting. And that was when he was a Democrat running against a Republican in a very Republican district, 1988, with Michael Dukakis tanking at the top (laughs) of the ticket and tanking nationally. But in the 5th Congressional District of Mississippi, you know, there there was nothing uh, there. But he he received 48% of the vote. And then the, the congressman who was elected was killed in a plane crash. Oh, wow. So suddenly in my freshman year of college, there was a special election that happened. And uh, my guy was almost a uh, an insurgent kind of third party, even though he had a party, but he was, he was counted as third party because the National Republicans were supporting one candidate. The National Democrats were supporting another candidate. And my guy was just coming out of nowhere and saying, I'm not really beholden to anybody. I'm just going to do what I think is right. And so he really needed the people who were with him. And mm-hmm. so those of us who were with him just had to step up into into big responsibilities, and he was elected. Yeah. And so I started out as an intern in his office and then ended up being his communications director in his reelection campaign. Uh, Gene Taylor. Gene Taylor. Uh, our fifth son is named for him, nice. Taylor Eugene. Yeah. And, um, he, really, he really taught me a lot because he was somebody – who had a, a very high sense of conscience in ways that were often frustrating mm-hmm. to those of us who worked for him because <laughs> there were all sorts of ways where he just wouldn't he wouldn't do what his party wanted him to do. Yeah. He wouldn't because he was a Democrat. He was a Democrat. But he was a but he was a conservative. Yeah, he was pro life. He was pro family. He was. Pro defense, big time, uh, all those those sorts of things. So he's kind of a a Harry Truman sort of Democrat, yeah. who has entered the time stream at a at a time when that just wasn't right. wasn't around. And yeah, you know, we would have these essentially heresy trials <laughs> with the uh, Democratic Party that would just rattle me because I'm having all these these really hostile people coming at him. He didn't care at all. Not one bit. So he he really taught me a lot about the sort of character that I would want to have. Even when I disagreed with him uh, on things, I would think, you know, I think he's wrong, but I really would like to be the kind of person that he is. To hear him describe Gene Taylor that way is pretty remarkable, because in the last few years, Moore has experienced intense criticism from people who think he's either too conservative or too liberal. He's withstood it all. But all that comes a little later. What happened next came almost by accident. I was done with college. I was working for Gene all through college. I had a really atypical sort of college uh, experience. And I was uh, about to, I was kind of back and forth from Washington and I was going to move permanently to Washington 
continuing a position on there, and then I was going to go to law school at night uh, while I was there. When I was in Washington one day, and Library of Congress used to have these discard books that you could come in and commercial staffers could just take. And so I had gotten a stack of them. And one of them was this little free will Baptist pastor's guide to doing weddings and funerals. And I just picked it up. And back at my apartment that night, I thought, why did I want that? So that sort of led to this long process of agonizing, thinking through what is it that God's doing. And so I had to come to the conclusion, I think God's calling me to ministry. I just need to do this. And I was really worried about telling him, Mm. told him, Gene, and he responded perfectly well. I mean, he said, I I would be upset if you were going to work for somebody other than Jesus. But how can I get upset about that? And and so he was good. I was also very worried, uh, probably more worried about telling my dad, Mm. who had been a pastor's son and... I think it's fair to say had some maybe cynical views of what ministry can do to families, to people, to so forth. And so I had to tell him, and that was a really stressful night. Uh. And he responded well. And so that was what happened. And I went uh, went on to seminary after that. Did you think you'd go straight to the you know into the pastorate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What led you in a different direction? I don't know. I, I really don't. I, I I try to look back and think about that and think what was the what was the thought process of doing the PhD. And I don't really think that there I don't really remember there being much of one hmm. other than I know that I think it had less to do with I need to do a PhD and more with what I talked about earlier about just having the sense of I don't know anyone who is doing the sort of thing that I think needs to be done. Huh. And so when I I went to the 1995 uh, meeting of, of my denomination, Southern Baptist Convention, and normally that was a very predictable sort of affair, and I just sort of felt like an alien there. But that year, the new president at Southern, Al Mohler, uh, was giving the convention sermon, and it wasn't slogans and it wasn't what I was accustomed to. Yeah. It was like, this is somebody who actually has very deeply thought through these issues and speaking to them. And so I more did the PhD in order to study in that context yeah. than I did to do the PhD on its own terms, it seems to me. Yeah. What was your focus, your emphasis in your PhD? Uh, systematic theology. And I worked in the area of eschatology, of of inaugurated eschatology, of how the kingdom is present and future, and what that has to do with the way that Christians live out their lives in in a social context. Yeah. Did you expect at that point to go? Well, really, did you expect at any point along the seminary track, like, was the trajectory to the pulpit, or was, you know, when did the turn towards academia and sort of public life? I... um, I expected that I would probably be in a, uh, say, university town pastorate, and I, I almost did. I had a situation lined up that I was headed to. Huh. But, I mean, I look back at that, I, th- I, think I, was looking at, I think I was looking at both because I also I interviewed for faculty positions at Midwestern Seminary and New Orleans Seminary. Hmm. Both of them turned me down because I was too Calvinistic. Huh. But I also was looking at this pastorate. I think a lot of things were sort of 
gelling coming together at the time that I couldn't really see. Yeah. So I think I, at that point, was willing to go in in either direction of academia or the pastorate. But I always wanted to, whichever one it was, to hold the two together closely as possible. And then the opportunity arose at Southern to stay. Yeah. There. Yeah, that had happened in in early two thousand one. Yeah. And what was the role that you were? Sure I started out as a professor of of theology. Okay. And it was, um, you know, I look back and that was such a a golden time that I really probably didn't recognize as, as a golden time at the at the time. But I can those first classes were relatively small. Because I was just starting out. Nobody knew who I was. I was the person people would take if they couldn't get into the theology class they wanted to get into. So I can still tell you pretty much who was sitting where in those first two classes and sort of follow those people everywhere they go (laughs) through life. And so it was really a a special time that I kind of look back at with. Yeah, with a lot of, and then eventually you you rose to several different roles there. Yeah, you were a dean for a while. You were vice president. Yeah, I became within two years. I became the provost, senior vice president, dean of the school of theology. Okay, where I was for almost ten years. Well, one of the things that I remember, I, I don't remember when you started sharing them, but you taught an ethics class. Mm-hmm. And the final would always be these sort of dystopian situations. Yeah. I'd love for you to share one or two of those if you remember any of those kind of questions, arguments that you yeah, throw well, out to people. I'll, I'll tell you the, the main reason why I would do that is because a lot of future ministers, pastors, missionaries, whatever, come into an ethics class, I think, assuming, okay, here are the answers to here are the ethical questions, here are the ethical answers, and just, you know, put the two together, which I think is really dangerous yeah. because the ethical questions change. If you don't have a conscience that's aware of those things, then you're going to end up in. So what I would try to do is to find a situation that I didn't think they had dealt with mm-hmm. and at every point try to make it more and more difficult uh, <laughs> along the way. So what people often do when they read these ethics exams uh, along the lines of, uh, so I think the last one I did was about sex robots, artificially <laughs> intelligent sex robots. But but I would I always wanted to get beyond the well, of course, question. So we always keep adding complexity. So the guy's in the military, he's overseas, the, the sex robots are there. Uh, he's, you know, this is 50 years from now. So it's a time when polyamory is expected, but he's a committed Christian. And this is uh, sort of the way he is avoiding that. Uh-huh. And then make it more complex by saying the sex robot is actually connected to his wife who is controlling this from the United States of America. And and the sex robot is designed to look just like his wife. And so, you know, you go, you go through all this. So often what people will say is, well, what's the answer? What's your answer? And they're always kind of surprised when I say, well, I don't know. Because what I do when I'm writing those ethics exams is try to trick myself. Right. So I make it complex enough that I don't know the answer so that I have to work it through the same way they do. And what I'm trying to do is to get them to, I'm trying to not necessarily see what's the end decision they make as what's the thought process. How are they reflecting on scripture? How are they, are they adequately assessing what's going on in the situation? Are they trying to live out consistently? So that's why I always throw in there things where it's 
well, if you say this, then would you also say yeah. blank and, and and so forth? And so by the end of it, I have to work through it as much as as much as they do. Yeah. Were you encouraged by the way people were able to work through those questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am. And it's remarkable, though, some people have started accusing me of having some sort of psychic power of predicting things that are, that are, so it's almost like, oh no, here's a, because, you know, there would be things that 12 years ago, the first one I did like this was about transgender situation where a woman comes to faith in Christ. She comes forward. She says, I want to be baptized, but she says, but I need to tell you a secret. My name's Joan, but I'm really not Joan. I was born John. And she's 50 years old, but 30 years ago, she made this transition. Nobody knows about it. Lived as a woman ever since. The person has a daughter that the person adopted 10 years ago, doesn't know any, knows this person as mom, doesn't know anything else about it. How do you work that person through the process of thinking through what does repentance look like and, and what do I need to do? What amazed me at the time was that most of the people in the room kind of laughed. Yeah. And said, oh, you you know, this is typical more tricking us with this bizarre science fiction-y hypothetical. Right. I said, I could come up with bizarre science fiction-y hypotheticals, right. <laughs> but this isn't one of them. You're going to have to be dealing with this issue yeah. in your churches. And then, I, mean, I don't know how many of my former students call and say, well, <laughs> Joan came today to, yeah. the, to church. And, and my response is to say, good. Yeah. Because if not, that doesn't mean that Joan's not out there. It means you're not sharing the gospel with Joan. Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of times there'll be things that are sort of on the precipice of right. uh, recent years have had to do a lot with— The sex robots thing is going to happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's... Absolutely. And and the thing about it is, is people aren't prepared to think through issues of technology. Yeah. The ways that technology can bring forward not new temptations, but can— bring temptations to different places mm -hmm. and can make those temptations invisible. People right. aren't really prepared for that because if you start talking about it before the technology is mainstream, yeah. then it's, oh, that's crazy. That, right. that would never happen. And then once it becomes mainstream, it's too late. Yeah, <laughs> It's already part of, you know, and, and that's for, for all of us. I found myself, I was talking to my wife about Super Bowl ad for Amazon Echo, where they had to try to figure out how to have an ad that would use the word Alexa without triggering all of the right. Amazon Echo devices all over the country and shutting down the system. So they did. They found it out. But I, I was telling her about it, and I was saying A-L-E-X-A -E because I didn't want to activate the Yours. Amazon Echo that's yeah. over there. And I was spelling words out kind of the way we used to when our kids were... <laughs> <laughs> toddlers who realize, wait a minute, I just wouldn't have seen that coming. Yeah. You know, and that's a little meaningless thing, but the bigger principle is there. By the time some technology is present in your life and it's normal enough that people get what you're talking about when you talk about it, yeah. it's usually after we've already adapted to, right. to whatever's there. Yeah, I just interviewed Rochelle Starr a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. for this podcast and one of the things that she said has been fascinating is that the adult entertainment industry has changed so much because there's now, you know, the technology has now enabled something like Uber for strippers. Yeah. So they don't need the clubs anymore and people don't have to go anymore. 
And it's like the access to these things changes so dramatically because of the, the technological shifts. And that changes not so much the moral or justice realities of what's taking place as much as it does. It changes who will be involved yeah. because you take down some barriers that, that people have. There are a lot of men who won't go into a strip club not because they have such a well-formed conscience about dignity of women and about holiness of, of sexuality or, or so forth, but because I just would feel gross being the kind of person that yeah. would walk into a strip club. Right. Well, once you remove that barrier, then you end up with an entirely new group of people who are potential right. victims. Let's talk about the ERLC. When did you become familiar with their work and kind of aware of what they did? Well, I was always familiar with what they did because, I mean, I grew up in a church at a time when Baptist life in the United States was very cohesive. And so there was something called Royal Ambassadors, which was kind of uh, Baptist Boy Scouts, except it was about missions. And so what you're doing is you're learning uh, the way Boy Scouts are learning the Pledge of Allegiance and, and so forth, you're learning, here's what we do. So you're kind of becoming familiar with with various entities and what we're, what we're doing together. So I was familiar with that. Meaning what the Baptists do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then I would find myself, I remember being in Washington during the Gulf War debate. My congressman voted against Gulf War authorization in 1991, which was a... Big deal. Again, it goes back to this, one of those words. It's his conscience, and we're all thinking, oh, man, we're going to get <laughs> slaughtered back home. But I was in the middle of that, sort of trying to think through that issue for myself. And I called uh, the ERLC, then called the Christian Life Commission, to say, hey, could you help me think this through? And I remember thinking at the time, you know, that would I would just love to hmm. get to do what they do. Hmm. So that was 1991, January yeah, 1991, yeah. yeah. So that was that was sort of the beginning of it. And then when did you become the president? Uh, 2013, the uh, long-standing president for 25 years, uh, Richard Land, had last several years was involved in a great deal of controversy over some racially tinged comments on the radio and some other issues that came along with that, and then retired in 2012. And so the the process started then, I think in the summer of 2012, and I was elected in March. So what exactly do you guys do? (laughs) Well, we do two things primarily. The first thing and the most important thing is to equip churches, Christians, families to think through essentially the Christian life. Uh, That's one of the reasons why they changed the name in this big denominational restructuring in 1996, which I think was a mistake, too far gone to do anything about it. But I think Christian Life Commission explained, at least to people within the church, better what it is which equip you to live the Christian life. Hmm. So everything from here's how you ought to think about adoption and foster care to here's how to set up a ministry to women who are being sex trafficked to here's how you ought to think about in vitro fertilization or whether or not you ought to have a living will. Hmm. All of those sorts of questions, ethical questions in the Christian life. And then secondly, we speak out from the churches to the larger world. So 
dealing with governments, uh, not just the United States government, but but governments all all around the world, uh, with media. A lot of what I do is dealing with with media, mm-hmm. a huge amount of what I do, and then w- with others. I deal a lot with people in the business community, in the culture-making sort of community, Hmm. many of them, most of them, not Christians, but to say, here are the things that you should think through. Your tenure here has been uncontroversial and uh, (laughs) relatively... (laughs) Well, I mean, anybody who's in this role, you're having to speak to what it looks like to live out the, the Christian life in a whole variety of issues. Sure. And you have to do that with a Christian community that is often struggling to try to think through new issues that they haven't had to think through before. Yeah. It's been a tumultuous... Has it been five years that you've been here now? Yeah, five. Uh, yeah, just over five years. It's been tumultuous for the whole culture. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of things people didn't see coming in terms of the rise of the alt-right, nationalistic stuff, and, yeah. and of course, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah. You were an outspoken early critic throughout the campaign, yeah. and you've taken a lot of heat for that. What have you learned from that whole experience? I mean, people—I'm going to guess that people who are listening to this podcast are going to be somewhat familiar with some of the things that you've said mm-hmm. about these things. I'm curious, for one thing, what's the toll been, and— for another, like, what have you learned? I, I'm, I know your convictions and these things haven't changed. Right. What have you learned through the process? I don't know that I could list out anything that I've learned. I can tell you what happened in 2016-17 was essentially the same sort of reality that I was talking about 20 years ago, huh. really the same sort of reality I was worried about at age 15. Yeah. And almost every— In terms of feeling like sort of fish out of water? No, 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 no. In terms of sort of a kind of Christianity that is very accustomed to being at the center of power Hmm. in a way that can give the impression that the Christianity is leading the way when in reality, often the Christianity is being led. Hmm. So that, that's what I was talking a great deal about from the very beginning of, of this tenure is what's happening in terms of cultural Christianity? Hmm. What does it mean to disconnect the gospel from its perceived usefulness? Hmm. In whatever way, right? Uh, whether that, and that's not just in terms of of political power. It's also in terms of much of what we saw with the seeker oriented Christianity that was booming through the nineteen seventies through the early two thousands, and and still remains in, in some ways. Was about that. How do you take what it is that you already want and aspire to, and Christianity can help you get there? All of that tended to come together. And and, and also the question of the way I see what Jesus is doing in the New Testament and what the Apostle Paul carries forward is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I do not judge those who are in the world. Otherwise, one would have to go out uh, from the world. I judge those who are part of the household of God. So that there's a a reality where Christianity can only serve the outside culture if Christianity is, in fact, distinct and free to be discipled by only one man. 
Yeah. And so all of those things were in many ways more easily perceived, but they were the same issues. Same issues. In the midst of the criticism, at any point, were you ready to walk away? Yes. The 2016 stuff is overhyped. I find this because the entire culture is subject verb Donald Trump on everything. <laughs> Choice of breakfast cereal, what does that right. have to do with, with Donald Trump? I think that's hyped to a great degree. What I found is not that there was a lot of criticism. It's that there was very little. Hmm. And that I actually had overwhelming affirmation and encouragement from most Christians, most Southern Baptists, as was seen in the votes they would take yeah. at the SBC, where we would be affirmed with this past convention, 99.5% of the vote. That's great. Those sorts of things. What I learned about myself was that sometimes when you're, and I found this at various times in my life, sometimes you're... You know, I would have, serving in local church ministry, you know, one anonymous note that would come in in the offering plate that would say, you you look too often to this side. This literally happened. <laughs> you look too often to this side. Huh. And that's what I would remember. Right. And so not the 15 people who are coming out the door that day who are saying, you help keep our marriage together or whatever. I just remember that person in a way that's not very healthy for me. And so one of the things that was really helpful is to realize, and I tell this to to people all the time, there are always going to be a handful of people who are going to be against you, no matter what it is that you're doing. Those are going to be the people who are motivated to say, I will talk to someone about most of the people who love you and encourage you and support you, just assume you know it. So I think during that time, what the Lord did was to enable me to actually see kind of something of the cloud of living witnesses Hmm. around me. So there were some really key people who, you know, what was going on at that point was no different than what is going on all the time. But they knew about it in a way in which they could call and encourage and shore up. There are some friendships that were built out of that time Hmm. that are so deep that I don't think. I can't imagine them. And so, I mean, there's people like Presbyterian pastor by the name of Ray Ortland, Hmm. who would come to my house every single day, just about, with just leave at the door, some little package of encouragement or whatever. Beth Moore, who, you know, would often text me sermons, essentially. <laughs> and I just remember, I, I told Maria, I said, it's kind of the humbling way the Lord works because I remember early on in my ministry being critical of Beth Moore, not in any sort of public sort of way, but just, you know, then later to say, God really knows how to, where I'm turning around and saying, if it weren't for Beth Moore, I don't know what I would have said or done in certain uh, situations. So she was really the Lord's 
sort of, you know, people like that. I think that was, yeah, that was really encouraging. What are some of the issues right now that the ERLC is focused on and trying to call attention to? Well, one of them is is racial reconciliation and justice, which again is an issue that demonstrates how little the Babylonian captivity of the church can change. Huh. So you you will often hear the exact same kinds of arguments in 2018 that one would have heard in 1965. I can read the mail that came in here with my predecessor in the 1960s when he was arguing for integration and the same sort of things that would be said right now. They're usually absent the N-word because people know there's a certain kind of social pressure that would enable them not to do that sort of thing. But it's the same sort of arguments. And those are the same sort of arguments that were being used in 1845 about the issues of human slavery. Hmm. Why distract from the gospel? by talking about these issues, which is, again, if someone were consistently living with that and saying, we're totally antinomian, (laughs) and so as long as you believe in Jesus, do whatever you want, sexually, relationally, everything else, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you'll go to heaven. (laughs) Um, Okay, I reject that, but I can understand it. Right. It's not uh, understandable when you have people who say, well, the Bible actually shapes the way that you live out your life sexually, and the Bible reshapes the way that you live out your life in terms of killing people in the womb, but the Bible has nothing to do with the way that racial and ethnic divisions can keep us divided from one another, when entire sections of the New Testament from Jesus's first sermon in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, all the way through to the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, are precisely and specifically about that. That's a key uh, issue that we're working on. Another has to do with issues of abuse and assault. Hmm. And one of the, the reasons for that is that what terrifies me is not only that you have the satanic reality of abuse and assault of women and, and vulnerable people, but that often that happens with people who are using the face of Jesus in order to prey upon people. So we're doing a lot of work in that area uh, right now as well. And then on issues of, of uh, technology, helping people to think through issues of artificial intelligence and those sorts of questions. What is going to be changing in terms of, say, pornography? What's going to happen with churches when, for instance, we have the advent of, I'm teaching my oldest sons to drive right now, and I realize they won't be teaching their kids to drive. Right. So when you have the advent of driverless cars, largely good development, I think. But what then happens to all of the people who are in church settings right now who are making their living in the transportation area, either in terms of UPS drivers or truck drivers or Uber drivers or whatever? Right. If that's suddenly gone, then what does that do and how can the church be ready to respond to that. So those would be examples of things that we're working on right now. Yeah. With racial reconciliation in particular, are you encouraged where the conversation is at in the church? I mean, this is a hot-button issue. Yeah. I've been called a Marxist on Twitter multiple times now. I'm sure you've gotten that one. It's the tattoos, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for the most part. And I think that's because I have an Augustinian sort of view of 
history, not a Hegelian view of kind of upward or downward decline or upward uh, progress, but a sense in which Augustine talks about the city of God, where you have this mixture constantly of both progress, for lack of a better word, upward uh, movement, and human sin and decline all at the same time. And that's happening in every single era. You just have to know where it is. Hmm. So I'm not one of those people who's kind of shaken by saying, can you believe we're still having to deal with this as though history itself would have taken it off of the table? Right. I'm saying I really would rather that we have to deal with this openly and confront it with the open proclamation of truth. Then we deal with it in some subterranean way, which is usually what happens. So, uh-huh. you know, you have a, a white pastor who preaches on what the Bible teaches about race in 1965, Georgia. He's going to be fired, and he's going to be fired because, you know, in explicit terms. That same thing happens, but it happens often with people who can't feel they can openly say their racist reasons for it. So they try to find other substitute issues where they can fight proxy wars against that guy. Sure. Uh, I know that. I've experienced that sure. quite often, and many people do, but they're in situations where often they don't have enough power to fight back against it. I think that's going to happen. I'm encouraged because one of the things that you see happening both for good and for ill in American life, in global world life, and in the church is, again, what I was talking about earlier, cultural Christianity doesn't work anymore and decreasingly doesn't work. So what you end up with is, I mean, Ross Douthat said, I think, completely correctly to sort of secular people, if you thought the religious right was bad, wait till you see the post-religious right, which we are now (laughs) seeing, except the post-religious right and some aspects of the religious right are coexisting together. But what you have there is not even a pretense the younger you go, not even the pretense of some sort of Christian, biblical Christian identity. There's a sense of, well, Christianity meaning Western culture, yeah, but not Christianity. So, I mean, you just look at the identity politics, white nationalist figures. The younger they go, they're not pretending to speak from the Bible. They're speaking from Darwinism, from any number of things, sometimes even outright paganism. Hmm. And so what that leaves is a situation where the church has the responsibility to say, well, what does the Bible teach? Also because what's happening in the global church is that so-called minority uh, leadership is leadership of the church. Mm -hmm. The Anglican communion, for instance, you have a choice of African leadership or heresy. And that can be repeated in the Methodist communion as well. And then if you look at what's happening in the United States of America, sort of uh, establishment, white, suburban, uh, rural Christianity is in a genuine death spiral. Hmm. It really is. You just look at the demographic. Where is the spirit working and moving right now in immigrant congregations in multi-ethnic congregations, in mono-ethnic congregations, but mono-ethnic congregations that are concerned about what that means for them. 
yeah. and how to connect themselves to the broader global body of Christ. So in that, I'm, I'm really uh, deeply encouraged by that. Yeah. Do you think there's a danger that if white evangelical communities and sort of the establishment parts— uh, because generally when people say evangelicals, they think of the sort of established white institutions, institutions that are dominated by white people. Well, yes. They think that. Largely, though, they don't even think that. Yeah. Largely because we live in a culture that's obsessed with politics. Yeah. Often what they think about is whoever is speaking the most to politics, even if yeah. those are people who have no connection really with evangelicalism at all. Yeah. So the question I have is, do you think there's a risk that if those institutions, those people don't come around to the urgency of these social justice and reconciliation issues, mm -hmm. that that might drive these other communities where spiritual life is starting to thrive towards theological liberalism? Oh, yeah. yeah. And oh, yeah. That, that's a big concern I have right now. And again, it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. There is a human tendency to say, the situation I'm in right now is awful. There has to be a place right. that I can idealize. And so what I have seen with some people that matter a lot to me is a sense of, well, we're never going to be able to get any upward momentum here. So the answer to that has to be in some form of liberalism. Yeah, or some other church communion. Yeah, in a way that, I mean, ultimately, once they get there, then they realize, well, this wasn't the answer to what I was looking for. But yeah, I mean, that that's going to be, that's a very real danger. There's also a real danger. I mean, you just look around and see the biggest concern I have right now and has been all along, are 15-year-olds like me, the 15-year-old that I was. And you just look around right now, and there are many of them who are concluding, well, the church is really, really about something else. Mm -hmm. And what the church is really about is white identity politics or some sort of cultural agenda or whatever. And Jesus is just the easiest way to get people involved. Yeah. So, actually, there is a real Marxist threat here, and the Marxist threat is not from the people who are saying, let's apply what the Bible teaches about racial reconciliation and justice. The Marxist threat is from people concluding that Marx was right, that religion is just the opiate of the masses uh, in order to, to baptize the, the status quo. And you can just look at the numbers uh, right now and it is absolutely astounding uh, of people who are, the younger you go demographically, saying this is, this is not what now. Some of that is because they don't need to right. culturally, but a lot of it is because they have that sense that I had, something here is really about something else. And I'm, something's, somebody's selling me something, mm -hmm. but they don't have that what I had, C.S. Lewis speaking into my life in print, having something else, and so they end up walking away. That's the biggest concern that I have.
One of the things I found surprising is that Dr. Moore doesn't really let all of this stuff discourage or cloud his perspective on the church's future. I have a, what some of my friends would think is an overly bright and sunny view of the future of the church. Because many of my friends have this very apocalyptic sense of secularism is going to be dominant or whatever uh, the the ism is, is going to be dominant in a way that's going to, to choke out the life of the church. I just don't think so for a number of reasons. One of those reasons being, I think Jesus was actually telling the truth at Caesarea Philippi. And so the church is going to be fine, not necessarily the American church, but the church will be fine. Uh, But also because I really don't believe that these alternative religions, whether it's sexual liberation or whether it's racial identity politics, whatever it is, I really don't think that they will leave people fulfilled in what they're looking for. I think they're going to fail in their promises. And so the church has to be there, as we always have been, to say, here's the way to living water. So I think the future is really bright. And that's especially true when you look and you see what's happening among young Christians, uh, some of them in very, very difficult situations on college campuses or in villages in Africa or in situations in Asia where they're surrounded by atheism and ancestor veneration and other things. I think, I think we have every reason to be really hopeful and, and grateful to God. First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, share about it. Share on social media. Leave us a rating and a review in iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. Also, we have a weekly newsletter. It's called The Roadstead, and it's got a column from me, related links to each episode, and more. Sign up for it now at cultivatedpodcast.com. You can learn more about the ERLC's work at erlc.com, and you should definitely check out Russ's new book, The Storm-Tossed Family. It's out here in the next couple of weeks, and you can pre-order it now. Today's episode was produced by me. It was recorded by Eddie Morris. It was edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music today was from Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. We'll be back in two weeks. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.